to Understanding Christianity. I am Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast today. We're going to deal with a very controversial and maybe somewhat confusing issue today, and that is the whole issue of what are we to think of the charismatic movement? What are we to understand about speaking in tongues? How are we to navigate through this very interesting and sometimes divisive issue? And so what I want to do is I want us to spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that Paul gives probably the most comprehensive teaching on this issue. And so what I want to do is I want to first begin by giving two of the main views or the names of the main views that are out there. And so you need to be familiar with these terms. Uh, The first term is the cessationist view. And the second term is the continuationist view. And so really, both of these views hinge on the end of chapter 13 and how a person interprets the phrase, when the perfect comes. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes. And so Paul here addresses that prophecy is going to be away with, tongues are going to cease, all these things are going to to be be done away with when the perfect comes comes. And so really you have to understand how the two camps define when the perfect comes. Um, Is this heaven? Is this the rapture of the church? Uh, Is this the maturing church? Is this the completed canon of scripture? Let me give you the cessationist view. Now the word cessationist really comes from the word to cease, to stop. And so here's what the cessationist view says. The cessationist view says that the apostolic sign gifts, the the sign gifts such as tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, prophecies, those apostolic sign gifts have ceased with the death of the original apostles along with the completion of the Bible in its final form. And so the cessationist view predominantly takes the idea that the perfect that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, means the completion of the Scripture in written form as the closed canon. And since the early apostles practiced these sign gifts as a period of transition between Jesus' ministry on earth and really the birth of the church and the writing of the Scripture, we now have all we need in the closed canon of Scripture, and since those early apostles have died and it was a transitional period and there's no need for prophets or apostles now, uh, the, the sign gifts, the miraculous sign gifts, are no longer in operation today. That's the cessationist view. Uh, the other view, the continuationist view, th- their argument is we don't see any reason why the gifts should cease. And they argue for the continuation of those apostolic sign gifts in the church today. The the way they take that view of the perfect, when the perfect comes, they look at that as the eternal state in heaven. Perfect is heaven. When we get to heaven, there will be no more need for spiritual gifts because we will be in a state of perfection and, and we will be in heaven and we won't really need to have those gifts. So the, the cessationist view looks at the perfect as the completion of the, the completed canon of Scripture. The continuationist view looks at the perfect as being in heaven. And so there's a continuum on both sides of that, that view. Um, there, there's a continuum. Um, an extreme cessationist would say that none of the gifts are in operation today and that the Holy Spirit is not working. Uh, That's an extreme view that I don't think anybody really holds to that's in the cessationist camp. The extreme continuationist camp would say that all of the signed gifts are in operation today and every single Christian needs to operate within all of the signed gifts. 
And so let me just lay my cards out on the table and tell you where I stand on this issue. I would consider myself what is called a cessationist in the sense that I believe that the canon is closed, that there is no more need for apostles today because apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Um, there's no need today for prophets because prophets operated in the early church and the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And now that the church has been established, the canon of scripture has been closed. We have a completed scripture. There's no real need for the apostolic sign gifts. Now, as a cessationist, I do not believe that the spiritual gifts are somehow not in operation today. I do believe in spiritual gifts. I do believe the Holy Spirit is working. I do believe that God intervenes at times through miraculous means, and God does perform healings. Um, but God is sovereign over that, and we'll we'll look at that as we go through this passage of Scripture. And so, before we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we need to ask some very important questions. So these are the introductory questions that we need to struggle with, we need to ask, and maybe these are questions that you've asked yourself. So first question, what actually is speaking in tongues? Is it a known human language, or is it an ecstatic utterance, or is it a combination of both? Second question, are the tongues in Acts at Pentecost? In chapter 2, are they the same or different from the tongues spoken by Paul that he describes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Another question, what is prophecy? What exactly is prophecy? And why is prophecy superior to the gift of tongues? Another huge question, how should the exercise of these gifts be done in an orderly fashion in the church for the mutual edification of all those present. Another huge question that a can of worms we're going to open is what, what role do women have in worship and tongues and prophecies? What is the second blessing? Maybe you've heard that term, second blessing theology. How has speaking in tongues been expressed throughout church history? And what are we to think of the modern charismatic movement? Well, I hope to address these questions. So let's just dive right into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read the entire chapter so that you can hear it in all of its context. And so we want to deal with the entire chapter. And as I read it in totality, we'll go back and address it piecemeal and, and, and try to understand what Paul's saying. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Long passage of scripture, but we're going to look at it here piecemeal. This section is really divided up into six parts. Um, in verses 1 through 5, you've got the superiority of prophecy over tongues. In verses 6 through 12, you have the idea that edification depends upon the intelligibility of tongues. Verses 13 through 19, you have stipulations for tongue speakers. In verses 20 through 25, you have the relation of tongues and prophecies to unbelievers. In verses 26 through 36, you have order in public worship. And then in verses 37 through 40, you have a warning and a summary. Again, let me lay my cards on the table and tell you that I am a cessationist. It means this. I don't experientially speak in tongues. I've never spoken in tongues. I never had a private prayer language. My entire church experience has been in a cessationist context. But I want to be fair, and I want to be um, discerning with others who may claim to speak in tongues or have a private prayer language. Um, and so I want to address those issues. And so let's just ask the first question. What is the gift of tongues? The cessationist view says, this is what I believe, the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in foreign, known human languages, which is previously unknown or studied by the speaker. So I believe that tongues are known languages, they're human languages, they're foreign languages. It's not an ecstatic utterance. Now, the continuationist view says that the gift of tongues is a heavenly language where a person is given the supernatural ability to either speak in some type of ecstatic utterance or to pray in this type of prayer language. So we've got to ask another question. Are the tongues in Acts that we see, the tongues of fire that come in Acts, are they the same or are they different from what Paul is talking about here in Corinth? I'm firmly established in the belief that the tongues in Acts were actual known human languages that were around in the world at that time where people who were filled with the Holy Spirit 
began to speak in tongues, and they were foreign languages, and those listening were able to hear in their own native language. Let's just read Acts 2, 6-8. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each in his own native language? In verse 6, his own language, and in verse 8, his own native language, that word for language is the Greek word dialectos. We get our word dialect from that. It it really means a real known language. And so, as a cessationist, I believe that tongues are primarily known languages. They are used for cross-cultural evangelism and missions where when a person enters another culture, another language, they may not have access to the gospel, but somehow, supernaturally, they're, they're able to understand the gospel in their own language. Let me give you an example. One of my good friend's wife, many years back, went on a mission trip to Central America, uh, to one of the Central American countries, and she didn't know Spanish, and she found herself alone, uh, talking with a woman with no translator, and the woman did not know English, uh, my friend's wife did not know Spanish, um, and so there was no interpreter present, and so it was difficult for them to communicate, but my, my, my friend's wife began to share the gospel in English, because that's all she knew. And the other woman heard and understand the word, understood the words that my friend's wife were using in her native language. And she began to speak back to the woman in her native language, and my friend's wife heard it in English. And so they had a gospel conversation. There was a witnessing encounter where two people were speaking their own foreign languages, but they were able to understand each other supernaturally. I believe that is a modern-day example of tongues. It wasn't in a worship service where it was all wild and crazy. It wasn't an ecstatic utterance. It was actually cross-cultural. It was for the purpose of presenting the gospel, and it was a situation where it was a known human language. So the issue we need to grapple with is whether what occurred in Acts is the same or different than what's going on here in Corinth. Nowhere do we find in Corinthians, that the tongues are explicitly or distinctly different than what happened in Acts. The bottom line is that scripturally, we don't have enough information to be dogmatic that it's different. So we need to carefully assume that they're at least the same thing. Paul himself said that he spoke in tongues. Look at verse 18. He says right there, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But, in verse 19, he says that in a public worship service, he would rather not speak in tongues so the church could be instructed and edified. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, if Paul didn't speak in tongues in church... That leaves two options for Paul. He either exercised a private prayer language or he spoke in known languages in his missionary journeys when he did cross-cultural missions and church planning. Those are the the really two options you have. If Paul didn't speak in tongues in church, if Paul didn't come to church and, and use ecstatic utterances in a church service, then either he had a private prayer language that he used privately, or when he went on his missionary journeys, he spoke in a known language doing cross cultural ministry. Here's the problem in Acts, which describes these things, we don't have much information about Paul speaking in tongues. And we never hear him speak in other epistles about a private prayer language. So really, we don't have conclusive evidence. What we do see in Acts 19 is that um, when he came to the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, but it does not say that Paul did. Now, let's look at some objections that maybe the continuationists would have. So if you're a continuationist and you believe in speaking in tongues and the sign, apostolic sign gifts are still 
uh, valid today. What are some objections that you have to us who are cessationists uh, that believe that tongues are known human languages? And so I want to be fair and I want to address your objections because these may be some things you're saying, well, wait a minute, hold, 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 hold it, Sean, time out. Uh, here's some objections I have. Here's what I believe. Uh, so here's the first objection you might say. Paul says that he speaks in tongues of angels. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So when Paul speaks in tongues of angels, he must be referring to a heavenly language that's unknown to any human. This must be evidence for a private prayer language. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see what Paul says. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels. Now, we have to understand something about what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul is speaking in highly exaggerated, almost hypothetical terms, this big hyperbolic, exaggerated way to prove his point of the necessity of love. If you look at the actual grammar of what Paul uses there in the original Greek language, it's in the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility. So what Paul is really doing here is he's, he's exaggerating. He's saying, if it were hypothetically true, if, if there were such a thing as a tongue of angels, and somehow, hypothetically, I was able to be given this ability to speak, it really doesn't matter if I'm able to speak in tongues of angels because the main thing is that I need to have love. So what Paul's doing there is he's not giving a teaching describing a private prayer language. What he's doing is he's exaggerating, saying if there was such a thing as a heavenly language and I was able to speak it but didn't have love, it wouldn't matter. He's trying to exaggerate to make a point. In addition, let me just say this. We do not see any example in the New Testament in the book of Acts or explicit teaching in the epistles of a person speaking in an angelic tongue. And we don't find Paul writing, commanding us to do so. So we have the argument of silence. Basically, we would say this, the Bible does not teach a private prayer language. Now, second objection you may have, if you're a, if you're a continuationist, is you would say, you know, the word unknown tongue, unknown, obviously has to mean an ecstatic utterance. The King James Version of the Bible uh, the translators put the word unknown in italics before the word tongue. Yet in the original language, the word unknown is not there. Literally, the Greek just reads tongue. So does the tongue being unknown necessarily mean it has to be an ecstatic utterance? Or could it simply unknown be that to the speaker or to the person listening, it was a foreign language on earth that was unknown to the speaker and to the one hearing it. Unknown does not necessarily by definition have to mean ecstatic. It could just mean unknown in the sense that it's a real foreign language that the, that the speaker doesn't know and the hearer doesn't know. So again, unknown by definition doesn't have to mean an ecstatic utterance. Now, 1 Corinthians 14.2 says that when a person speaks in a tongue, let's read it, verse 14 or chapter 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. They would say, or maybe you would argue, when someone speaks in a tongue, they're not speaking to men, but to God. So therefore, when they're speaking, it must be a private prayer language. Basically, a person is talking directly to God in prayer. They're not talking to another person. They're speaking in a private prayer language. But yet, if a person speaks in a tongue and there is no interpreter to give meaning, well, he's only really speaking to God because the other person can't understand without an interpreter. So again, I don't know if that's conclusive evidence to teach a private prayer language. Well, some people may jump over to Romans 8.26 and use that as a proof text to say, well, that Paul, Paul's saying in Romans 8.26, he's giving evidence for a private prayer language. Let's read Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, if we read this carefully, 
we see there's no mention of speaking or praying in tongues. There's no, there's no mention of tongues in that passage. In fact, the one who's doing the praying is actually the Holy Spirit, not the person. He himself is interceding for us with groans. And so basically what this text is teaching is sometimes we're clueless in our prayers. We're helpless in our prayers. We don't know how to pray. And what this text is teaching is that the Holy Spirit takes our sincere heart what we don't know how to pray, and he literally brings that prayer to the throne of God in a pleasing manner. He's the one that intercedes for us. We're not the ones that are actually praying in a prayer language. It's the Holy Spirit who's interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. So where do I stand on a private prayer language? Scripturally, I do not see any explicit teaching on the subject or any clear biblical examples. So scripturally, I have to say, I don't see any evidence for it. Experientially, I have never experienced it myself. Pastorally, okay, as a pastor, here's where it gets tricky because I've had people over the years come to me and say, I've experienced this. I've had a private prayer language. And it's hard to, for me to, to, to deal with this at times because I don't want to downplay a person's experience and say, well, what you had wasn't a real experience. What I would say is this. If you have a private prayer language, let me let you know where I stand on it. I don't see any scriptural evidence for it. I don't experience it myself, and it needs to remain private. If it's brought into a public worship service, or it's brought into a small group, or sometimes you're trying, or you're somehow you're trying to proselytize others in the church to, quote, get this gift, or make people feel less spiritual because they don't have it, then pastorally, I'm going to have to tell you to not, to not practice that, okay? Keep it between you and the Lord. If it's a private prayer language, you know, keep it between you and the Lord. I don't see scriptural evidence for it. I don't practice it myself. Experientially, it's never happened to me. But pastorally, I want to be somewhat sensitive to the fact that you may have this. Just keep it to yourself. Now, let's talk about the value of tongues. Paul's purpose in writing chapter 14 may not necessarily be to elevate the gift of tongues, but really to show how they were abused in the church and to correct them on this so that true edification could take place. In verses 1 through 5, he focuses on the important issue that must happen in church life, and that is building up edification, encouragement of the body. Notice what he says in verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Over and over again, he uses this term built up, edified, encouraged. A prophecy, what I believe is preaching the truth of the written scriptures, has more ability to do that edification and that building up because it's intelligible. Everyone can understand what's being said. They can hear it. They can see it. They can follow along in their own Bibles. Tongues, on the other hand, are difficult because in and of themselves, they can't provide that edification because they have to be interpreted. And so what Paul's doing here from the very beginning is saying, listen, the ultimate issue in the life of a church is building up, is edification, is strengthening. And the primary way that's done is through preaching the written word of God. That does that. And so any type of practice that doesn't build up, that doesn't edify, that doesn't mature the church should be suspect. Now, in verses 6 through 12, Paul's going to focus on the intelligibility of tongues or of prophecy in public worship. And so what he's going to give, he's going to give two illustrations uh, to prove his point. The first illustration comes from musical instruments. Uh, In verses 7 through 9, he says this, Even in lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinctive notes. How will anyone know what is played? And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound... Who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking into the air. Paul's making the argument, listen, even instruments like a flute or a bugle or even a guitar or a harp, 
you've got to be able to play specific notes. It has to be played intelligently. It has to be given notes for there to be beautiful music to the hearer. And so even instruments themselves have somewhat of a language. Um, if you play discordant notes or you just sit there and you, and you pick up the flute but you never play it, how is it to be understood? And so he makes the application to worship and with speech saying, when you utter speech that's unintelligible, you're basically just speaking in the air. It sounds like discordant notes. It doesn't make any sense. And so when you come together for worship, you need to make sure that your words that you're speaking make sense. So the first illustration he uses is, is from the world of musical instruments. Second illustration he uses from human language itself. In verses 10 through 14, he says, There are doubtless many different languages in the world. Okay, known languages, languages in the world, and none is without meaning. So, so all of these languages that are in the world have meaning. There's syntax. There's structure, there's grammar, there's diction, all, all the things that relate to, to language. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what Paul's doing here is he's saying, bottom line again, if the language spoken in church does not build up, is not intelligible, does not make sense, does not edify, then it should not be done. And his argument is that prophecy, since it's more intelligible, since it's preaching the written word, it should be present in worship. Whereas tongues, because they need interpretation, are not as apt to build up as prophecy. Now, in verses 13 through 19, He's going to give stipulation for those who speak in tongues. And I don't think Paul is speaking here of a private prayer language. I think he's talking about public praying in a worship service, how to conduct a public gathering. And so what he says there in verse um, 16 Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 16 speaks of an outsider coming in and not being able to say amen to the public prayer because he really doesn't know what's being said. What Paul's saying here is in a public worship service, what he's saying is if everyone's speaking in tongues, everyone's praying in tongues, there's no intelligible interpretation, that does not edify, that does not build up, that does not instruct everyone present. The person praying may be actually praying to God out loud, but it's not helping anybody because people can't understand it. In the end, it may just draw attention to yourself. It doesn't build up the congregation. And verse 19 is key in understanding Paul's overall stipulation for public worship. What does he say? Nevertheless, in church, in church, in a corporate gathering, Paul says, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Ultimately, intelligible words preached from God's written scripture, used for instruction, used for teaching, used for edification, is far more important than speaking in tongues. Therefore, Paul would say, preaching and teaching hold a higher place in the public worship service. Now, what is the purpose of tongues? In verses 20 through 25, Paul gives the purpose for for tongues. Now let's start with the wrong purpose. What, what is the wrong purpose for exercising tongues in a worship service? If speaking in tongues draws attention to yourself, if speaking in tongues promotes an air of spiritual superiority where you've arrived and others are not as, as spiritually adept as you, or if it's demanded that every single person speak in a tongue, then it's being done in an inappropriate and unscriptural manner. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
Verse 11, all are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Down in verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. What Paul is saying is that when the Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts, the ultimate purpose for spiritual gifts in the life of a church is for the common good. It's for the common good of the entire church family, not to draw attention to yourself, not to um, to be prideful, to, to be jealous of others who may not have the same gifts as you. Uh, and number two, the Holy Spirit sovereign over who gives the, who gets the gifts. In other words, you, you can't manufacture these gifts. These gifts aren't learned. Um, I've heard of some people that are taught at a very early age to um, begin to speak in tongues. And they're told to just start babbling. Just start babbling like a baby and just kind of empty your mind. And then over time as you babble, then you will eventually learn the, the, the technique on how to speak in tongues. And the question is, if it's something that you have to learn or a technique that's man-made or it's baby talk, is it really of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit sovereignly gives it. And Paul even says here, not everyone speaks in tongues. It's not a universal gift that it's required for all Christians to have. What is the stated purpose of tongues? When tongues are exercised, number one, they must be translated and they must be used for edification or instruction. But notice very clearly what Paul says. Tongues are a sign to unbelievers, prophecy is a sign to believers. What does he say there? Whoops, I'm back in verse 12, back in chapter four. Let me chapter 14. I was the page was turned. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but your thinking, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. But Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, in the cessationist view in which I hold, if you remember what I believe, tongues are known languages that are used in cross-cultural missions as a sign to unbelievers who need to hear the gospel, and repent and believe. Prophecy, on the other hand, or preaching, is a sign for believers. That's why it's in a gathered worship service where we preach intelligible messages so people can hear and understand. Um, If we were in a foreign context where translators were needed, we would preach with a translator as a sign to unbelievers so they could hear the gospel and understand and respond. So, So here's a huge question. Are tongues even to be used in a public worship service, or are they specifically to be used in cross-cultural missions? I think we cannot get away from the fact that they have at times been, been used in public worship services because what Paul gives next, he gives the rules for tongues in worship. And so before we look at the rules, orderly worship, it's very interesting. No other gift except for tongues and interpretation of tongues, is regulated in the Scriptures. There's no regulation on how to use the gift of mercy. There's no regulation on how to use the gift of um, administration or of um, teaching. Uh, it's interesting that gifts and uh, the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues is regulated. And so here are the rules. What are the rules for orderly worship? Number one rule. It must be for the overall edification of the church. Verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Number one, overall, Paul says it over and over in this chapter, everything done in a corporate worship service, everything done when the church is gathered is for building up the church. Not for dividing, not for confusion, but for building up. Rule number two, no more than three in a service are to speak in tongues. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. Okay, so this prohibits the entire congregation speaking in tongues and uttering things much like you see on Christian television where everybody's kind of ranting and raving. Number Rule number three, 
one at a time. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only one or two, at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. It must be done orderly with one at a time, speaking, followed by an interpretation, and no more than three in a worship service. Rule number four. There must be an interpreter who's actually different than the speaker. So the speaker can't speak and then turn around and interpret what he said. Uh, Verses 27 and 28. If there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So if there is no interpreter, number five, he or she must stop speaking in a tongue and remain silent. Rule number six. In all things, there must be order and not confusion. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Also look at verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. That's very, very key because often what you see on Christian television or often what you see in any of these weird manifestations is it's not orderly. It is confusing. It is wild. It's a circus. It's crazy. Number seven, those who speak in a tongue or prophesy must be under control and submit themselves to the authority of the church. Uh, Verse 32 says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, what does this mean? This means that a person can't just get carried away in a frenzy. You can't be slain in the spirit, bark like a dog, and then basically say, I couldn't help it because I was just overtaken by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. No, you're subject to the authority of the church. You're subject to others. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a God of order and self-control. One of the troubling things we see today, I believe, is people speaking, quote-unquote, in first person, giving direct quotation from the Lord as if they are giving direct prophecy. And, and, And we see this in the Old Testament. It's very, extremely rare in the New Testament um, and so it's very interesting. Sometimes um, television, televangelists and others can speak as though they have ultimate authority from God. Uh, they can never be questioned. They're speaking directly from God, giving a direct word of knowledge or prophecy. Um, and this oftentimes leads to spiritual abuse. It leads to exploitation. It leads to manipulation. It leads to dishonest gain with these wild fundraising campaigns of sowing seeds into pastors' ministries. And so there is a... I think a dictatorial, almost abusive mentality in many of these movements where a prophet receives direct revelation from God because basically he can get away with murder and he can get away with whatever he wants because if he quotes or if he claims that he gets direct revelation from God and he speaks them on behalf of God, then who are you to question? Because if you question him, you're questioning the very word of God, and who would dare do that? So he or she can keep people in fear, keep people in manipulation, keep people in guilt, basically telling them, if you question my authority, if you question what I'm saying, you're questioning God himself because I am the anointed one. Touch not God's anointed. I have this direct pipeline to God. You do not. So you must trust what I say. Now, here's another issue, (laughs) another rule, and that is women should remain silent and learn in submission to their husbands. We see this in verses 34 and 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should learn in submission, as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is also corroborated by what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11-12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain silent. Now, some of you may say, well, wait a minute. Back in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks about women praying and prophesying in the church. Um, they had to have their heads covered. Uh, How come Paul here is supposedly contradicting himself and saying women should not prophesy? Well, here's my best attempt to solidify or synthesize these teachings of Paul. In the Corinthian church, women could pray. They could possibly say a word, 
but they still had to be under the authority of the elders. In other words, they could not hold a preaching or teaching position over men. When the time came for weighing of the prophecy or the tongue or whatever was happened, women could not have a part in this because it would mean that they would have spiritual authority over men. And since the elders are men who have spiritual authority, they're leaders in the church, uh, such matters need to be weighed by them. And so when you think about this issue, and I hope I'm not offensive about what I'm about to say, I hope I'm not painting with a broad butt brush, but, but I think it can be corroborated by um, empirical evidence when you look at the landscape of the charismatic movement. And I hate to say this, but much of the heresy and false teaching that goes on today comes from these women preaching who are having authority over men and who are abusing these spiritual gifts. I'll just leave it at that and let you be the determiner of that, but just look at the landscape and see where a lot of these heresies are coming from. Not saying that heresies don't come from men, but it's interesting that in the charismatic movement, the extreme charismatic movement, where a lot of these women are prophesying and leading, there's a lot of heresy. Now, in verses 36 through 40, you have got the issue of the summary, where, in conclusion, what, what Paul's saying. Uh, basically, Paul's saying, um, if anyone does not recognize that he is this, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Basically, in conclusion, Paul's again saying prophecy, preaching, preaching with intelligible instruction should have a higher priority over tongues because it brings more edification to the entire church. At the same token, he does not forbid speaking in tongues. D.A. Carson, in his book, Showing the Spirit, a theological exposition of 1 Corinthians 12-14, gives this story of two pastors having a discussion about tongues. One was a cessationist and one was a continuationist. And the continuationist asked his friend, Why would you do what would you do if someone began speaking in tongues in your worship service? You know, legitimate question. You know, to talk of theology, one practice of speaking in tongues and worship services turns to the cessationist says, Hey, what would you do if someone began speaking in tongues in your worship service? And the pastor replied, I would allow him to finish, and then I would ask for an interpreter immediately, and then we would weigh what was said in accordance with scripture. And if there was no confusion or proselytizing in the coming weeks, I would have no objection as long as it was done in an orderly fashion. That's what the cessationist said he would do. Then he turned to his charismatic continuationist friend and said, but would you, what would you do if there was no public speaking in tongues in your worship service for six months? And he replied, I would be devastated. And the other pastor replied, that's the huge difference between us. For you... Speaking in tongues is something you can't live without. But for me, I see it as appropriate if it's done orderly, but not forbidden. Now, I don't know if I agree with the, 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 that illustration as far as the, the, the situation that was going on there, but it's interesting to show the dynamic between the attitude of the two views there. Now, I want to explore some common issues related to the issue of the current state of the charismatic movement and speaking in tongues. And so what I want to address is the second blessing movement. And it's gone by many different names over the years. But basically, there are those who teach, quote-unquote, a two-stage or a second blessing model of salvation. And what they say is the first is, is being born again. You're, you're regenerated. You have your sins forgiven. Every single Christian experiences this. But, they argue, there's a subsequent or second experience or second blessing that you experience that gives you more victory in living, it gives you more empowerment for service, and this second blessing is most clearly evidenced by speaking in tongues. They argue that those who've received the baptism of the Spirit receive the gift of tongues, and they've been elevated to this higher realm of spiritual experience. Almost like this two-stage. So there's the regular Christians who've been saved, but then there's the real spirit-filled, speaking in tongues Christians who have arrived at the second blessing where they can truly live in the victory of what we were meant to live in. Now here's what we need to understand biblically. The Bible teaches that we are indwelt, sealed, baptized, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. 
and the Bible knows nothing of a subsequent experience for truly, quote-unquote, spiritual Christians. If this is the case, then myself and everyone who doesn't speak in tongues is somehow on a lower plane of spirituality in our Christian walk, and we're missing out on this greater victory that God has for us. Now, obviously, we, we as Christians should seek a greater love and passion for Jesus. We should seek personal revival. We should seek a personal relationship with Jesus. We want to grow in our progressive sanctification. We want to um, gr- you know, have, have progress in our growth. But this theologically doesn't mean that we need a second blessing or that we need to begin to speak in tongues as evidence of this. In reality, we really should be seeking a third or fourth or a fifth, not blessing, but a deeper relationship with Christ that continues throughout a lifetime. It's more evidenced in the fruit of the Spirit and progressive holiness than it is in speaking in tongues. There are not degrees of the Holy Spirit in each believer. But I do believe that there is a degree of joy and passion and obedience in each believer, and that's evidenced in progressive sanctification. Obviously, when you get saved, you are justified, which justified means you're declared righteous. You're declared not guilty in God's sight to the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's a positional standing that is permanent, whereby you are accepted by God. That's positional. It doesn't change. There's no degrees to your justification. There's no levels to your justification. But in sanctification, there are degrees. You can be more sanctified at some periods of your life and others when we talk about your Christian growth, your growth in character, your growth in holiness. And so, yes, there are degrees of sanctification in the life of a Christian, but not degrees of justification. Now, what about church history? Where has this whole idea of speaking in tongues or been exercised in the last 2,000 years? Well, the Montanus movement, is evidence of that. Montanus was a second century heretic who practiced speaking in tongues and believed in direct revelation from God. So really in the second century, there was a heretical movement that sprung up that practiced speaking in tongues, the Montanus movement. Speaking in tongues again appeared in the 17th and 18th centuries in small pockets of Roman Catholic groups in Europe. Uh, The Shakers, the group called the Shakers in New England. Um, And so sporadic throughout church history. Um, Here's a sample from a tract from the Pentecostal Christian Evangelism Association. I want to read this tract, and I want you to see what you think of it. He said, the quote, here's the, here's the, the attitude, or here's the quote. For the church's early rejection of the genuine baptism with the Holy Spirit, with the visible and audible biblical evidence of speaking in other tongues, and the initial and only evidence authenticating reception of this baptism is without possibility of contradiction the most monumental, the most awesome, and the most sinful blunder in all of the almost two millennia of church history. What are they saying? Basically what they're saying is for the past 2,000 years, the fact that the church didn't practice the second baptism in speaking in tongues is the most sinful blunder that's happened in the past 2,000 years of church history. So for the past 2,000 years, basically the church got it wrong. They were sinful. And it's, it's the most awesome contradiction. Um, how dare the church live in such sin for 2,000 years and not practice speaking in chung, tongues? So, so really historically, the movement has been sporadic. It's been on the fringes. If you look at some of the greatest revivals and reformations and influencers in church history, that they did not speak in tongues. Nor was those great movements somehow crippled because they didn't speak in tongues. When you think about the Protestant Reformation, God mercifully launched the Protestant Reformation through Luther, through Calvin, through Zwingli and others. They did not speak in tongues. And that was probably the greatest Reformation and revival in church history. The first great awakening in America Another powerful move of God through the leadership of Jonathan Edwards in America, George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers in, in Britain, they did not speak in tongues. Let me give you a quote from D.A. Carson, I think, that sums it up. He says, quote, It would be a strange thing to conclude that a modern charismatic lives on a higher spiritual plane than did, say, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, Count Zinzendorf, or Charles Spurgeon, since none of these spoke in tongues. 
Now, just because it's been on the fringes for the past 2,000 years of church history, and it's been revived in the past maybe 100 years with the uh, you know Azusa outpouring in, in Los Angeles in the early 1900s, does not necessarily mean that God in His sovereignty cannot renew this movement if He wants to. I'm not saying God sovereignly can't do that if He wants to, but here are my concerns. Here are my concerns. There is no biblical warrant for, treat, for treating speaking in tongues as the critical and normative evidence of a certain level of spiritual experience or maturity. Tongues don't evidence spirit baptism. Tongues are not intended for everyone. In public worship, they must always serve to build up the entire body. There are rules set forth by Paul for orderly worship. If someone does experience a private prayer language, it's between them and God, and they must not blow it out of proportion or use it as a substitute for other means of spiritual growth, and they must not pressure their fellow believers to seek it. And obviously, we see the practice of prophecy and speaking in tongues being abused to deny the authority, its sufficiency, and errancy of scriptures. Now, I want to make a distinction there's a huge distinction between theologically sound believers who are charismatic continuous. Okay, There are theologically sound believers who are charismatic continuous. I would put people like Wayne Grudem in that. I would put people like Sam Storms. Those are two leading, strong, theologically sound, reformed men who are would be considered charismatic continuous. And, and, and most people have read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, an awesome book. There's a huge difference between those guys and the heretical, prosperity, gospel, name it and claim it, word faith teachers that you see on Christian television that say if you're sick, it must be your fault because you haven't exercised enough faith. It says there's healing in the atonement, which means every blessing from the cross must be received now. You, you don't wait to get to heaven to receive all of God's blessings for you. And there's these weird, wacky manifestations of being slain in the Spirit, the laughing revival, barking like dogs, vomiting in the Spirit, getting drunk in the Spirit, getting Holy Ghost toked in the Spirit. Uh, all these abnormal heresies that, that actually grieve the Spirit. Uh, I would urge you to go listen to or watch the videos from the Strange Fire conference put on by John MacArthur's church or, or read his book, Strange Fire, to get an idea of what's going on in the world. Or just, I don't encourage you to do this, just turn on TBN or Daystar and watch at least two or three programs and you can get enough of that. But I encourage you not to do that. The worst place you can go is Christian television. I would say 90% of what's on there is heretical. It's your best bet to stay away from that. Now, here are some pastoral reflections on how I believe that... Um, Tongues should operate at my church. And this is kind of where we as, as elders have landed on this issue. Uh, I personally am a cessationist. And all of our elders are cessationalists. And we believe that tongues are known way, uh, languages used for cross-cultural purposes. Um, but I also know that in our church there may be some who have a private prayer language or speak in tongues. And so I would say to them that the predominant culture of Emmanuel Baptist Church and its history and where we are now has always been cessationist. And so as cessationist and the primary culture here, I don't think it's appropriate for us to look with suspicion on those that are continuationists in our church. And I don't think that continuationists in our church need to become arrogant or try to proselytize those who don't speak in tongues. And so what we need to understand is the most important issue in our church should be love and building up one another in unity. Okay. Now, the other thing that we need to talk about our church is that everything should be done in an orderly fashion. It's very important for us that when we gather for corporate worship, when we have small groups, any type of gathering of the church, it needs to be done in an orderly fashion. And I would also say this, it's very important in the life of our church, all matters of public worship and teaching come under the spiritual authority of us as the elders of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Even we, we, and I hate to use the word regulate, but I do use the word regulate. We regulate the curriculum that's used in our church. 
any teacher, small group teacher, women's Bible study teacher, uh, Sunday school teacher, growth group leader, they've got to get the approval of the elders on any curriculum they're going to use. And anybody just can't go out there and use whatever they believe. And that's the kind of the culture of our church. And so people come and they, our leaders know that. They come and they ask. They say, is this okay? Is this appropriate? We want to submit to your leadership. Um, and there's been some uh, curriculum that I've had to deal with. When I first came to the church over 10 years ago, um, one of the first battles I had to fight was um, there were some women that were doing a Bible study under the auspices of our church, and I found out that they were using Joyce Meyer as their material. And um, I was new to the church and, you know, young pastor and um, wasn't quite sure. I obviously believe Joyce Meyer is, is wrong, is, is heretical, is outside the bounds of, of what I as pastor wanted our church to be about. And so, you know, I had to navigate, how am I going to do this? And so I went to the Bible study leader, the lady, and I said, listen, um, I'm new to the church and um, I'm, you know, you guys have called me here as pastor. One of my jobs as the shepherd, the under shepherd is to, to protect the flock from heresy, to protect the flock from false doctrine. And I needed you to know that I have a personal problem with Joyce Meyer. And as pastor, I believe that she is not in line with where our church's theology is. And this woman got pretty upset. Well, you know, you know, she, she got pretty upset. And I said, listen, can you do me a favor? Um, before you make a judgment, can you go research Joyce Meyer? I want you to go research her. And I gave her some websites. I said, you do the research. You come back, go to her website, look at her beliefs, look at her teaching, and you come back and tell me if it's in line with what we believe as a church. And so I gave her that challenge. And so she went, and about two weeks later, she came back. She said, oh, Pastor Sean, I didn't realize she believed this, and I didn't realize she believed Thank you so much for taking me on this journey because I began searching and looking at these websites and looking at her statement of faith, and I, I can't believe she believes these things. We're definitely not going to do Joyce Meyer anymore. And so pastorally, I was able to exercise some, some spiritual authority there in a kind way, but really she had to discover this on her own. And so you know, in, in a church, if you're, if you're not in a church that takes discernment seriously, if you're not in a church that has qualified elders that lead and guard the flock, then you really need to be um, careful or need to be in a, in a church where that's taken seriously, where uh, the shepherds, the elders guard the flock from false doctrine. And so as a pastor and as elders, we're not going to promote, we're not going to foster speaking in tongues at our church. Uh, we're not going to foster or, or advertise private prayer language. We're not, we're not a charismatic church. Now, I have charismatic friends. I have a, a group of pastor friends that I pray with every Wednesday uh, from different denominations. And we have met every Wednesday for probably the past three years to pray for revival, to pray for our churches, to pray for the lostness in our city. Um, we've done some joint worship services together. But never in those times have any of those charismatic brothers of mine forced speaking in tongues upon me. Have they ever prayed in tongues while we were together? Um, it's been a very uh, joyous experience to be able to partner with them in prayer and see, see that respect. And so we want our church not to be known for confusion, disunity, or proselytizing. And so uh, that's where basically where we stand on the issue. Now let me give a closing comment again by D.A. Carson. He says, In short, the church must hunger for personal and corporate submission to the Lordship of Christ. We must desire to know more of God's presence in our lives and pray for a display of unleashed, reforming, reviving power among us. Dreading all steps that aim to domesticate God, but such prayer and hunger must always be tempered with joyful submission to the constraints of biblical discipline. To the constraints of biblical discipline. What I would say in closing is this. As a cessationist, I'm not saying that we should not seek for a deeper experience with Christ. I'm not saying that we should not seek for revival, we should not have a hunger, we should not desire to grow, we should not desire for God's reviving power to be evident, the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I desire that. But that needs to come under the biblical constraints of how God has revealed that He does that. And so I believe that the extreme charismatic movement and a lot of the things that you see on television and a lot of things in the Word Faith movement, they basically are outside the bounds of what I believe biblical discipline is. And so, um, again, you may be listening to this podcast today and having a lot of questions. Uh, you may be struggling with this whole issue. You may have friends or family members that speak in tongues, or you may be in a church that's charismatic, or you may have experienced a private prayer language, and, and, and you've had some experiences. And I don't want to deny your experience, but I would say the bottom line is this. 
Everything at the end of the day has to filter through the sufficiency and authority of the Bible. If the Bible does not teach it, if the Bible is not clear about it, it doesn't matter what our experiences are. What matters is the authority of Scripture. And so what's been eroding in our culture is what we call sola scriptura. This whole idea of Scripture alone. We are denying the sufficiency of Scripture and we're elevating experience over that. And so in our culture, evangelical culture today, experience trumps everything else. It doesn't matter what God's Word says. It's what I've experienced. It's what I feel. It's what, I, what, I'm, what I'm experiencing, what emotions I'm having. And we're so um, drunk on experience that we basically shove the sufficiency of the Scriptures to the sidelines and not allow the Bible to be the final authority to speak to these matters. And so every experience that you have needs to line up with the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm thankful that you've taken the time to listen to this podcast. If you want to contact me with questions or comments, I'd love to receive your email. You can go to my website, seancole.net. You can find my contact information there. I'd love to engage with you. Again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. Have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you.